So we're here for another special excerpt edition. I'm here in in person with, uh, <laughs> what is it, Canada Reads nominated, Toronto Reads nominated? No, no, Toronto Book Awards. Toronto Book Awards <laughs> nominated. Wish Canada Reads, but not yet, not yet. She's working on it. So <laughs> I'm here with uh, Canadian author Carrie-Anne Learn, and we are here to discuss your first book, The Wondrous Woo. Yes. Yes. Okay. So before we dive into it, Carrie-Anne, why don't you tell the podcasting world, who are you? What's your story? Give us a quick bio. (laughs) In a nutshell, I'm a writer. I've had uh, two books published. My first one is called The Wondrous Woo, and that was also shortlisted for the Toronto Book Awards in 2014, I think. And my latest book is That Time I Loved You. That was just out in March 2018 and was also shortlisted for the Toronto Book Awards. So you're not you're not finding any success, is what you're saying. <laughs> it's been pretty cool, I have to admit. It's been a good year. All right. So can you tell me a little bit about how you got into writing? So when did it start? Mm-hmm. How did you find your footing? I, I mean, I think I'm just kind of um, the classic story of the nerdy kid who read everything in the library. And uh, I always wanted to be a writer. I always wanted to join the world of books. And I wasn't somebody who had a bucket list. I didn't, you know, I didn't want to grow up and get married and have kids and, you know, have this great job, which, you know, I don't know what great job there is to have, but I always wanted to write. And um, it was something that I put off for a long time because I just never thought being a writer was a viable career option. But when I turned 40, I had just finished my PhD. I had just had a kid. And uh, I just felt like at that time that I really, I don't know, having a kid for me meant that I had to just act on things that I really have always wanted to do. So I started writing the novel, which was The Wondrous Woo, uh, and I was lucky enough to find a publisher. So yeah, that's about it. So tell us a little bit about The Wondrous Woo and maybe elaborate a little on why you decided to write YA Mm -hmm. or young adult literature as your first novel? I really was pretty clueless when I started writing it. I didn't even realize what YA meant. I never thought of it as a YA novel, but because the protagonist is a young adult, um, that immediately classified it as YA. And I guess when the book came out, it it was sold as a YA cross and which has been really wonderful to see this like explosion of YA and how much it's being read by all ages. So when I started writing The Wondrous Woo, it just started out, you know, I always start with character in my process. And I was really intrigued with this character that I started developing, who is Miramar Wu. And based a little bit loosely on my life in that the contours of her life really parallel mine. But a lot of it was just um, Miramar came very fully formed as a character. And, you know, there were days that I just sat there and I felt like I was just a typist. You know, she made me laugh. She made me cry. And it just kind of took off from there. So you mentioned that she's partially inspired by you, but you also feel like she's her own individual person. Can you elaborate a little bit on how your own experiences ended up informing the character or maybe the larger arc of the novel? Mm -hmm, For sure. I think, I I guess a lot of writers, you know, their first few novels, I think they mine their memory of things. And for me, I guess, 
growing up not reading my own story or stories that resonated with me. Like I didn't read my first Chinese Canadian women writer until I was 20, which was Sky Lee's Disappearing Moon Cafe. And that a lot of the Asian American writing at the time was very much based on Chinatowns. And that was, you know, I grew up in the suburb. So as much as it was really great to see that kind of resonance, I never felt like I really saw myself. And, um, so I guess I, in writing The Wondrous Wu, I really wanted to, I guess, write the book, you know, what did Toni Morrison say, write the book that you wanted to read. And so for me, that was The Wondrous Wu. And the suburbs as a setting was something really important for me to to represent, especially as a young um, person of color, because we don't really get that. We get a lot of the suburban middle-class malaise that's usually a white narrative, and think that there's so many, the, the suburbs are rich with other stories. Which you're now mining, of course, in that second book as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, Scarborough itself is kind of a character in both of the books, and I never meant that to happen. But I guess as I'm writing, I realize how much that place shaped me and my coming of age. And so, uh, yeah, like I think that that's, that's really, it, it's been interesting for me. So thinking a little bit about that, I'm always very interested when location ends up becoming a really prominent figure or component of a novel. Why did you end up sending Miramar to Carleton or to university at all? So I think that's where it parallels my life because then I went to Carleton. <laughs> and I wanted her to, you know, I guess Miramar's story is such a, um, is in some ways a conventional hero's journey, right? The hero always leaves and goes away and then comes back with a bit more wisdom and a bit more insight. And so I guess for her journey, going to Ottawa was that. And I really wanted to reflect on, um, you know, like, especially as a coming of age story, we all feel so conflicted about where we grew up, you know, like we love it and we hate it. And uh, I think that that kind of complexity is with Miramar as well. And I needed her to leave in order to have some reflection on that place before she came back. So. Now, does that also mirror a little bit of her mother's experience of moving to Canada and feeling displaced and like you don't quite fit in? Absolutely. I think that there is like throughout that's the story. It is about how does one belong? How do you make home? How do you, you know, is it relationships? Is it a place? So I think that there's a lot of kind of grappling of where does one fit in the world for Miramar, as well as for all of the members of her family. So when I had the pleasure of interviewing our first Canadian author, Kevin T. Johns, we talked a little bit about the inciting incident in his book, in which he essentially murders one of his characters at the end of the first chapter. And then when I was rereading Wondrous Wu for this, mm -hmm. you essentially opened the book by killing Miramar's father. So I'm wondering, was that a deliberate decision to say, this is how we get her to start on her journey? Or mm -hmm. was there ever drafts where you envisioned telling more of the Wu story before her father passed? Yeah, it always um, started with her, her father's death. And again, this is, um, you know, uh, it, it's, it's kind of based on, on my own memories of a very close friend of mine whose father died and watching how her and her family, you know, work through and their grief and, and the loss of their father. So 
I, it started with the kernel of that anyway. So it started with the fact that I knew her father was going to die and I knew there were going to be like superhero powers somehow. <laughs> and that was all I knew. And then I just started to write. And I guess um, it all came out that way. Okay. So my next question was definitely about the powers because that, it doesn't feel like it came out of left field, but it's an exciting development that the first time I read the book, I was just like, oh, wow. Okay. And now we suddenly got this in there. And the the book really takes on a different kind of it goes on a different direction than I was expecting it to go mm-hmm. as a result of that. So mm-hmm. what what's with the powers? <laughs> I think, first of all, I just love magic realism. Yes. Like, I just love that. I just love magical elements in fiction. So there was that. And also, like, Miramar's world is so informed by her whole imagined world, right? Like, she loved kung fu movies. And in kung fu movies, there's a lot of magical elements. So I wanted to figure out a way to blur the two in not a way that didn't seem too disjointed. Like I wanted to be more of the seamless thing where you actually could believe that this would happen. Like, why wouldn't they suddenly get powers, you know? So I guess that was what I was trying to do. I was trying to to think about how, you know, even in the, the most ordinary lives, extraordinary things can happen. And did you ever consider giving her a quote-unquote power? Because I think mm-hmm. it can be argued that Myanmar does have a power, but it's not of a sort of supernatural, fantastical mm-hmm. nature, right? I mean, she's the glue that holds that family together. Mm-hmm. She's the mediator. She's the only one, I think, who really makes an effort to keep her family from falling apart Mm -hmm. and that is a power unto itself but obviously it's not Mm -hmm. fantastic yeah absolutely and i think that that's what she has to sort through and i think you know that's a good metaphor for life we don't often understand or know who what the roles we play in each other's lives and i think that's something that she comes to realize about herself that that is her power and her strength so taking a step back from the book itself, can you walk us through what the writing process was like for you? Mm-hmm. How long did it take? Did you find out more about yourself by how you like to write or mm-hmm. what your process was essentially? Yeah. With um, with The Wonders Woo, the first draft came really fast. Like it was something that just kind of poured out of me. And it was so fun. The, you know, and writers say that a lot of the writing is in the revision. And that is true. The first draft that I wrote was in third person. And then I realized that wasn't right. So I rewrote it all in first person. (laughs) So it's, you know, the revision and, you know, it's sometimes it just, uh, it takes, it takes a lot of tinkering, right? In order to settle on all of those really important things like like perspective and so forth so the first draft came really fast and it was really fun but then it was all the revision that was really the grunt work of things and are the revisions halfway near as fun no because the thrill of the first writing is always way more fun right like for me and that that depends like I talked to some writers who like labor on every line, right? And that is not me. For me, I need to get the story down first and then go back and work on um, the other things. And there's pleasure in both. There's pleasure in both, but it definitely, I've learned a lot about how revision is so much of the writing. 
So after you had the book locked down, mm-hmm. what was the next step? So this first book, The Wondrous Woo, is with an independent publisher. Mm-hmm. And then the second book is actually with HarperCollins. Yeah. Okay, so can you, I mean, obviously, however you feel, mm-hmm. however much you feel comfortable sharing, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, what's the difference like working with an independent publisher versus a major publisher? For sure. Well, you know, first of all, like when I finished The Wondrous Woo, it spent like more than two years on slush piles. Like I need to say that first. Like it is publishing is slow, like really, really slow. And there were, you know, promising leads by publishers who asked for the full manuscript. But it, you know, it just kind of like sat there for a long, long time. And when Anana, which is a um, a feminist press in, in Toronto, decided to sign me, I was just overjoyed. So. With Anana, it's like they have like 1.5 staff full time, like, and it's a labor of love. Like, it was a very much a labor of love. I felt like the manuscript and me as a writer was really cared for. Like, we didn't have a lot of the money to back us up. There's no publicist, there's, you know, but it was so much a labor of love. So, I learned a lot about what it meant to do my own promotion and, you know, do the hustle, really. Which is often like not a comfortable thing for writers. Like self-promotion is really hard. A lot of us are just kind of introverts, right? And contrary to popular belief, I'm pretty shy. Like I am, you know, especially about like getting my own work out there. It, it's it's daunting. So I learned a lot about that. So when I signed with Harper Collins, I was nervous because you know it's a machine, right? Harper Collins is a well-oiled machine. And one of my first meetings with Harper Collins. My agent came with me and we sat in the boardroom with like a table full of people who were by team. <laughs> and that included marketing, social media, um, my publicist, my editor. Like it was really a very different feel. But what, I, what I've really learned also is that the relationship between the writer and the editor is so important. And I love my editor at HarperCollins. Uh, she made me feel like that she had a lot of respect for the work. And our editorial like, editing experience was so good that she was always so respectful of the integrity of the work that I never felt worried about it in her hands. So for me, I just feel like I've been really lucky at both places. And it really is based on um, my relationship with editors who have cared about my book not just as a commodity, which is what I was worried about, about going into a big press. So I've just been lucky that way. Yeah, because it really is a labor of love. I mean, Mm -hmm. as an artist, you're almost squirreled away working on the secret world. And then there comes a time when you have to share it and get feedback and think about, okay, now we have to figure out how to sell this to people. And that's which I think is, it can be uncomfortable, right? Absolutely. And it's and it requires another kind of brain, right? So you're the person who's the creative, but then the business mind comes in, your agent, right? And the publisher. And it's a very different mind that they are using to think about your book. They're thinking about markets, that who will buy this book, who will read it, how will it be placed, who will review it. Uh, like, you know, like there's all these questions. Like even with the cover, like with Wondrous Woo, my friend designed that cover for me, right? Really? And Anana was like, okay, 
Whereas with the second novel, That Time I Loved You with HarperCollins, like it was a whole marketing team that then did focus groups and then showed me this is what the cover will be, you know? So that's kind of the differences. So it requires uh, requires a lot of trust working with a, a big publisher as opposed to like more control with a smaller publisher. So as we mentioned off the top, the quality of the writing is so good that you have been shortlisted for multiple awards. So can you walk us through what that awards process or maybe even like what the season is like, what the pole dancing ends up being? That's a good way of putting it. It is pole dancing. So what is the difference? So again, because I was with a smaller press, what happens is like you don't get you don't get access to a lot of things like the festival circuit and, you know, like a lot of things. But what the being nominated for the Toronto Book Awards did for The Wondrous Woo was it gave me a lot of free press. They sent a film crew to create a trailer for me. So I had like a free trailer and a free interview. They gave me a stage at Word on the Street. Excerpts of it was published in the Toronto Star. Like, so it really like gave a big boost to the book, whereas a lot of books and smaller presses kind of like it really, it's really hard to fight for that kind of attention. So that was really great. And then with That Time I Loved You, it is like, you know, right away, like I was, I was invited to all the major festivals and all kinds of these opportunities that just came automatically without me having to go out and hustle a lot. Is that also because of the goodwill generated from the first book? You know, it's the difference from being an unknown author compared to, oh, okay, you know, as soon as the second book was announced, people were on the lookout for it and they probably wanted to get their hands on it. One would hope, Joe. (laughs) That's a very nice way of looking at it. I hope so. I'm not, it's hard to know, right? Like it's, I don't really have a really good perception of, the book in the world like I really don't know I like the last I went to the Vancouver Writers Festival and um, it was so fun that I was really just fangirling everybody but the fact that they knew me and my book and took me seriously was a real like whoa moment for me that wow like maybe I am in the literary scene now you know and that was really like whoa I, I really wasn't expecting it and that's part of me, like not, it's, it's kind of a disconnection. Like I don't, I don't know if writers really know um, how they are. Like, or maybe I'm just clueless because like, this is like, I'm not so savvy about the industry yet. Well, I'm, something that's come out in both this interview as well as the interview with Kevin is the fact that it's not like there's training on how to handle this. I mean, yes. you write I think intuitively or because you've got a great idea or because you want to give it a try. But then Mm -hmm. what happens in the editing and the revising and the publication and then the marketing and all that kind of stuff. I think a lot of people, they're figuring that out as they go. Mm -hmm. There's no course that you can take where you say like, okay, now I'm ready to market this book or or go on a cross Canada tour to publicize it or something, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's something... A lot of first-time um, published authors are quite stunned by, right? That, okay, you've already done the hard work of writing this book, and now you got to go out and hustle it, right? And that's, that's, that's you know, it's, it's hard to know what to do. And, and you know, that with social media now, too, like, there's such an expectation for you to be a presence as a writer 
And, you know, like I was um, I was on this panel at uh, at a festival where one of the questions was, how do you negotiate between the public and the private? Because I think that there's if you've gained some success, people want to know about the writer instead of just that the work speaks for itself. I'm still kind of working that out. You know me, Joe, like I'm I have no filter, (laughs) (laughs) which is, you know, fine and good. But I do feel like there's um there's a new sense of vulnerability for me because I'm not sure who's out there and who's reading and um, what they're saying and, you know, weird things like that. So I'm a little bit weirded out by it and having to kind of think through now how to present myself, you know? I was going to do some mock indignation about, well, fine, you could have said no to this interview if you really thought. <laughs> Never. <laughs> All right, so a couple more questions. Mm-hmm. We've talked a little bit about Scarborough and Carlton informing mm-hmm. that autobiographical experience, but I wonder if we can pull it back even further and say, you know, what is your relationship to the nation as mm-hmm. an author? Like, do you feel that you are a Canadian author? Do you feel that you're a Toronto author? Do you feel like it makes any kind of difference? Mm. Does that inform your process or who you are? Yeah. Um, I think that I have tensions with being all of those things. You know, like I I think I just write from a place. There's a lot of crap in Canlit right now. Like there's a lot of issues that that's come up in Canlit that's been very much this this kind of old guard versus the new wave lots of questions about representation and race and all of those things so i'm kind of i I, i'm kind of in tension with it i feel like you know one of the things that i really love about being a writer right now is i feel like i very much am writing in company with a lot of other writers who are trying to grapple with similar things that i am and that's been really cool. Like, I think it's a really exciting moment in Canlit in that there's all these kinds of diverse voices now that are queer, that are trans, that are indigenous, that are like racialized writers. And I think that I, I feel like we're all kind of, you know, my friends anyways, I think we feel like we're in tension with it. And I think that that's okay, because these questions are all are all up for debate right now. Yeah, I think one of the things that Brenna and I have discovered about doing this podcast is just how prevalent the white writing community and often Mm -hmm. the white male writing community Mm -hmm. has kind of dominated the conversation. Mm -hmm. And it's been really exciting to seek out different texts and to see, you know, at the time of this recording, they just announced the annual Goodreads Awards. Mm. And one of the things that I was really struck was they did almost like a legacy award of like the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. And the book that won in the YA category was The Hate You Give, which is uh, this fantastic text, which we haven't had the pleasure of doing on the podcast yet. But Mm -hmm. um, it was just one of those things where you're like, I feel like maybe even five years ago, that text wouldn't, maybe even wouldn't have been in the conversation. And instead it's winning these major awards you're you know in contention for major awards yeah these things are exciting and it's so exciting yeah I mean I appreciate that you mentioned there there's an issue of feeling vulnerable and having to put yourself out Mm -hmm. there and the expectation about being available to people Mm -hmm. but I I like the idea that on the flip side there's also the opportunity for people to connect with writers and yeah. have access to people whose stories maybe weren't being told before. Absolutely. Like, and I'm really mindful of that in that, you know, 
even if I feel like there's this vulnerability, I feel like that I have a really great platform in order to to have my voice out there because I know that I needed it um, when I was growing up. I needed, and I, now I'm meeting all these like emerging writers who are really needing that kind of guidance and that kind of knowledge on pathways to publishing that I can give now, right? Um, and so that's really that's been really great. All right. So our final bonus round question okay. is the fun one. Okay. So thinking about Wondrous Woo, mm-hmm. if it were ever turned into a film, mm-hmm. and it would make such a great film, by the way, um, <laughs> do you have a cast or a director or somebody that you envision that you think would be a great collaborator to bring it to life cinematically or on television? Mm-hmm. I just love Michelle Yao forever. <laughs> so she has a role somewhere. I don't know, maybe as Ma. But then I think in the screen adaptation, she would have to have some Kung Fu too then. Um, <laughs> because, of course, Michelle. I think it would be like, you know, one big blockbuster star like Michelle and then a bunch of unknowns, you know, to play June and her siblings and Mouse, you know. And I think it would, not that I've thought about this at all, Joe, um, I would think like it would be also like interspersed with animation. So I think it would be cool to have some of the sequences like the air kung fu scenes in animation, you know? So yeah, I don't know. I love that animation idea. Yeah. To be honest, even I think it fits really well with the cover as well. Yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. Let's make it happen, world. <laughs> Call me. <laughs> So if people did want to get a hold of you, mm-hmm. um, how might they reach you or where can they follow you? Sure. I have a website. So it's just www.carrieannlearning.com. And you can go find all my contact information on that page. Okay. And we'll link to that in the show notes so that people can get to it easier. Mm-hmm. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much, Carrie Ann. Thank you. Thank you.